The Freedom Project is the pursuit of a healthy mind, body, and soul. By investing in these areas, we can live our calling to the best of our ability. We hope to inspire you to chase down the dreams that you have tucked away in your heart. This is the Freedom Project Podcast. Please acknowledge that this episode contains material from battles and real stories from the front line. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Taylor Husby, and this is the Freedom Project Podcast. You have a really, really good speaker and a good story coming down the pipes. And um, I'm just going to introduce Patrick Nelson. He is a father of four, a husband, and a former Army paratrooper. He's completed three combat deployments and is a proud recipient of the Bronze Star and the Purple Heart Medal. He works hard to provide for his family by facilitating leadership development programs and is a professional speaker and trainer. Without further ado, Patrick Nelson, welcome to the Freedom Project Podcast. Thanks, Taylor. It's great to be here. I was curious when I read your bio, what was it that kind of stirred in your heart to uh, want to deploy, to want to kind of take that as your career path? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, it really starts, um, I mean, way back when I was born, honestly, you know, I grew up um, in rural Minnesota. And when I was born, my mother was single, 19, unemployed, living on government assistance. I, I think we all know what the statistics say of, of somebody mm-hmm. kind of you know growing up in a, in a house without a father. And, um, you know, the odds were kind of against me. And so when I was growing up, I saw some drugs in the house. One day in, in the sixth grade, I'm coming out of school. My mother's getting arrested, put in the back of a cop car right from the entire school. My mm-hmm. stepsister committed suicide in rehab. I ran away from home and I took my mom to court. It was a pretty, you know, tough childhood, hmm. um, but it could have been worse. And in, in my junior year of high school, uh, I joined the National Guard and I didn't really know too much about it, but they said, yeah, we're going to go to Oklahoma this summer for basic training. And I was like, wait, I can get out of here for the entire summer. I don't need to be, you know, here in, in small town, Minnesota in the situation that I am. I was like, sign me up. I had no idea what I was getting into. And so I, I listened. And so that summer I took the, the very first flight ever of my life, uh, you know, went down to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, completed basic training, came back, did my senior year of high school. And I, I barely graduated high school. And uh, went back to Oklahoma to complete what's known as my advanced individual training for my you know, job specialty in the National Guard. And somehow I stumbled my way into a small community college in rural Minnesota. You know, obviously I didn't have the type of family that was taking me on college visits or help me <laughs> fill out applications or financial aid forms. I did it all myself. So, you, you know, Taylor, no real direction in life. I started skipping classes that first week. As far as college was concerned, you know, I really wasn't going anywhere, but all of our lives changed that Tuesday morning in September in 2001. And as I watched on TV, as the 9-11 attacks happened, like many people, I felt those same feelings, helplessness, sorrow, anger. And so two days after the attacks, I dropped out of college and I went to the Army recruiter's office and said, I want to go active duty Army. And, uh, and that's what I did. And yeah, I, I was fortunate to serve as a paratrooper for six years, 10 months and 22 days, or as I say, <laughs> nearly seven years and had a lot of, um, you know, great experiences from it. A lot of very difficult times, but I certainly would not be who I am today without that experience. Holy smokes. That is really an incredible upbringing. Um, only to to take advantage of an opportunity that laid itself right at your feet. Where were you deployed, first of all? Yeah, so when, when I initially went on active duty, um, I, I, I got stationed in Germany at this unit where they shot rockets. And I wasn't trained to shoot rockets in, in the Army. So they they made me the colonel's driver. Now, I didn't drop out of college after 9-11 to be a chauffeur, right? I mm. I, I joined because I wanted to be in the fight. And I was at this one training exercise. We're out in the field training in Germany. And I saw these guys parachute out of the back of a helicopter. And I pointed up. I said, that's the stuff I want to do. <laughs> 
And the guy that was standing right next to me was my first sergeant and he had great connections. And so I was able after six months in the army to get reassigned down to the historic 173rd Airborne Brigade based out of Vicenza, Italy. And, uh, you, you know, went to airborne school and became a paratrooper. And then we deployed to Iraq uh, in late March of 2003 for 12 months. So that initial invasion and then that little bit of a lull and then, you know, the insurgency kind of ramps up. So I was there from March of 2003 to March of 2004. And then, you know, after that, it's basically a year on year off cycle of sort of training, getting ready for the next deployment is really kind of what happened for us. Was your training in Italy too? Yeah. So we trained between, so I spent my entire time in the army between Italy and Germany. Uh, So, you know, just short of four years in Italy and uh, about three years up in Germany. And then obviously the deployments in between. So I did Iraq for 12 months during that initial invasion, came back for exactly 12 months of the day, went to Afghanistan for 12 months, came back to Italy, moved up to Germany, and then went back to Afghanistan again for 15 months on my last tour. Really? Tell me a little bit about Afghanistan. Yeah, so Afghanistan was different. Um, You know, it was different than Iraq. And I always like to say, you know, people's experience deploying, regardless of whether job or unit, everybody's experience differs. And, you know, I probably saw more combat in that first deployment to Afghanistan than I saw in all of Iraq because that insurgency wasn't that ramped up to what it became in you know 2007 2008 2009 um Mm -hmm. there was a lot going on in afghanistan but it wasn't getting all the attention like iraq was you know iraq was uh more of the the glamorous war that the media liked to cover but there was a lot going on in afghanistan and so that first deployment we were stationed out near the pakistani border um just a few kilometers away and we were working exclusively with the Navy SEALs and the Army Special Forces on that deployment, which was pretty neat. It kind of gave us a view into, you know, how they operate. And, you, you know, it was, um, you know, a little over three months into that tour, um, you know, where I had that situation that really kind of changed my life forever. Let's hear about it. Yeah. So it was June 8th, 2005, operating on that small Ford operating base near the Pakistani border. And, you know, I like to tell people this was the type of place that we were short on everything except the enemy. So, you know, we were facing regular indirect fire attacks. We participated in several large battles that had seen between 50 to 100 enemy fighters each time. And so on this particular morning, we were getting resupplied with some ammunition by a Chinook helicopter. Now, Chinook, one of those with the big double rotor blades. And it was a common part of what we did. Our platoon was divided into two sections so anytime that a resupply would come in you know one of those sections would be designated as the hot gun which meant they had to stand ready to respond in case we got attacked Mm -hmm. while the other section went out to the helicopter and unloaded the supplies Mm -hmm. on this morning my section was the hot gun but the other section had a sergeant that was leaving to go on r&r so I was going to go ahead and, you know, backfill his position, help that team out. It's something that we had coordinated prior to this happening. And as I heard the sound of the helicopters approaching, I hopped in a Humvee with my good buddy, Luke. And right before we drove out to the landing zone, my soldier, Emmanuel Hernandez from Yauco, Puerto Rico, hopped in the back. Now, he's supposed to be back with the hot gun crew. So I turned around and I was going to chew into his butt a little bit. But then I thought, you know what? I value that kind of work ethic in my soldiers. Like he wants to come help out the other team and lift these heavy boxes of ammunition. I know our section, the hot gun will be fine without. Him. So I didn't I... say anything, but as I was turning back around out of the corner of my eye, I noticed he didn't have his helmet on. Mm-hmm. And so I literally opened my mouth to yell at him. But of course I realized I don't have mine on either. Obviously it's kind of hard for me to say something Mm-hmm. If I'm not doing the right thing. So I didn't say anything. And the helicopter landed. A, a group of 10 of us stepped over to the side of the helicopter so they could kind of take this machine gun off the back ramp. We could start unloading it. The rotors were turning. We couldn't hear each other, but my platoon sergeant handed me a piece of paper. It had some, you know, serial numbers and some items that we were expecting. He's basically telling me, hey, it's your responsibility to make sure we get these specific items. So I grabbed the piece of paper from him, 
And I turn my back to the group of soldiers so I can ground guide my buddy Luke and the Humvee. You know, just I'm backing them up, get them a little bit closer to the back of the helicopter. And the next thing I remember, it was just like, bam, everything just went completely dark. And I'm laying on the ground, disoriented. I can't hear anything. And my first thought is, you know, one of the guys just came and hit me on the back of the head, just a bunch of soldiers horsing around. But then I looked up and there were bodies and blood all over the ground. And at that point, the helicopter powered down. My hearing came back and I heard that very distinct whistle of an incoming rocket. So I quickly got up and I dove underneath the Humvee for cover as rockets just started impacting all around. And of course, as I was laying there, you know, all puckered up, hoping one didn't hit the Humvee, I realized it was a rocket that that had knocked us down. And so as that barrage finally ended, I crawled out from underneath the Humvee and I started making my way back to the soldiers that were still laying on the ground, really unsure of what I was going to find over there. And as I was doing that, a Marine yelled from behind me that I'd been hit. And up until that point, I didn't felt any pain, but I just turned my head and I looked at the back of my uniform, and it was just shredded. Blood was starting to pour out. And, and the other soldiers did a great job. They triaged those of us that were wounded, loaded us in whatever type of vehicle they could find. And they brought us to this small clinic on our base that was ran by an Afghan doctor who was treating the locals. My wounds were very, very minor compared to everybody else. I was peppered in the back with some shrapnel, small holes, nothing too serious. So my buddy Luke bandaged me up. And as he was doing that, I'd seen Sergeant Michael Kelly. He's a supply sergeant that was literally just attached to our unit the week before. He's laying on this elevated stretcher off the ground. And the Afghan doctor who worked in that clinic, a real short guy, Hmm. he's standing on this red milk crate. And he's performing CPR on Michael. And so I got up and I did a quick lap around the clinic so I could see who else was hurt. And I had come across my platoon sergeant. The guy just, you know, give me that piece of paper right before the explosion. He's laying on a stretcher on the ground on the outside of the clinic because the inside is already full of others who were hurt. The femoral artery in his leg was severed along with uh, some other severe wounds. Hmm. And so by the time I came back around from walking around, it probably was 45 seconds. But they had lowered Michael to the ground and were zipping him up into a body bag. And I made my way into a small room in the back of the clinic where I had found my soldier, Emmanuel Hernandez. He's laying on a table. His head is bandaged. He's unconscious, but I can see his chest rise and fall. So Mm -hmm. I knew that he's breathing. Mm -hmm. And I I grabbed his hand. I whispered everything was going to be okay. Medevac helicopters arrived, brought us the surgical teams that were spread throughout the country. I was on a helicopter ride with my platoon sergeant, but then lost consciousness due to the amount of blood that he lost. But thanks to the quick thinking of the soldiers on the ground that strapped a tourniquet on his leg and the medical staff that treated him, he survived. He kept his leg. Hmm. The surgical team removed several pieces of shrapnel from my back. I like to joke. They left a few souvenirs in there for me that were a little too deep for me to, for them to get out. And they stitched (laughs) me back up. They sent me back to the landing zone at that base to get on another helicopter ride to go to Bagram Airfield to get some more advanced medical care. As I was waiting for that helicopter to come in, my commander came up to me to see how I was doing. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be just fine. How's Emmanuel? And he, he turned to walk away and he probably got about four or five steps. And when he turned back around, he had tears coming down his cheeks. Hernandez didn't make it. And, you know, my, my knees got weak. I, I hit the ground. My commander embraced me. It, it was a, a really tough situation. Um, and back at Bagram Airfield, we, we held, um, you know, a, a, a fallen hero ceremony where they sort of line, line the runway and, and you know, they, they load the, the flag draped um, casket onto the airplane for, for that sort of final ride home. And, it was tough. Um, you know, I was, I was medevaced out of there for about three or four weeks and was finally able to get back out there, um, with the soldiers. First of all, I'm sorry, your buddy didn't make it. You've had a lot of time to think about that since that happened. 
I, I have. Yeah. You know, and, um, and I beat myself up for a long time. Say, how are you doing with that? Yeah. Tell me about that, man. Yeah, I mean, well now I'm doing great. You know, I, I tried to drink my problems away. I tried to wash them away with pills. I was addicted to Viking and morphine for five years. It's a miracle that I survived that. Yeah. And of course, none of those work, right? Those only serve as accelerants for other challenges that I was already facing. But thankfully, you know, I've learned, hey, I can take that story. I can inspire others and I can influence the future. It's reignited that purpose again for me. Well, let me ask you this. Did you experience PTSD? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I still have it. There's, you know, there's no cure for it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, I've found things that work for me to be able to better manage the symptoms. Again, I bounced back pretty quick after being wounded. Um, and I think that was because I got out, got back out there with the soldiers so quickly where sure. I honestly really didn't have time to process things. I'm still in an active combat zone. We're still getting shot at. Like you don't really have time to dwell on things too much. Once I got out of the army and, you know, I'm enrolled in college, but I really started to isolate myself. Um, it, you know, I, I was addicted to Viking and morphine at the time on the outside, things probably looked normal for people, but on the inside, it absolutely was not, you know, the nightmares that I was having, the, the survivor's guilt, beating myself up with it. And there's a lot of great resources out there. I had no excuse in reality. Asking for help is actually a strength. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, thankfully I, I learned that, but it took some time and really, surrounding myself with the right people who weren't going to tell me what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear. Mm -hmm. um, people who had my best interests in mind and really wanted to see me succeed. I, you know, I like to think they saw some potential in me, but they also knew that the path that I was going down wasn't going to end very well. You know, after some, I, yeah, I went through some therapy at the, the veterans affairs, the VA medical center, um, some cognitive processing therapy. I don't think it really helped me so much. But again, I mean, what helps one person may not help somebody else. And for me, honestly, what I think has helped me the most was just really reigniting that purpose in me again, mm -hmm. realizing that, it, I mean, it's a cliche, I, I can't change the past. But again, I've learned that I can actually take that story and I can do some good with it. And yeah. that's really what drives and what motivates me to this day. And, you know, later on, you know, I've really kind of reignited that purpose again through being a father. I was taught exactly what not to do as a parent. You know, I, I always had a vision of, you know, I wanted to have a, a lot of kids and I, I just kind of knew what I wanted to be as a dad. And I, I wanted to be fun and just loving. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, obviously I, I love my kids, but it's just, it's really special to me. Um, you know, trying to provide opportunities for them that, you know, I, I didn't have when, when I was a child. And thankfully, my wife and I are, are pretty much on the same page. You know, <laughs> it, it was interesting on our first date, we we both talked about just our, you know, we want to adopt someday. And, you know, talk about that on the first day. And then she starts saying, oh, and if we if we have a, a girl, her name's going to be Hazel. And of course, I'm thinking on the first day, like, okay, yeah, right, lady, we're going <laughs> to, lo and behold, of course, our, our daughter's name is Hazel, our first daughter, and we adopted as well. Um, you know, it's God has just been in all the details with us and has, has blessed me with such a strong woman who has really, you know, picked me up and just been there for me through a lot of the challenges that I have, because I still have those challenges, right? I, I, I will still have, uh, times where, you know, I will kind of get down and out, but again, I mean, we're just so equally yoked with each other that, you know, it's, um, she just kind of recognizes those situations. And um, I mean, without Shanna, without my wife, I, <laughs> I, I really don't even know, honestly, if I'd still be here right now. Is that right? You know, you kind of, you kind of paint the, the, the picture of the perfect storm. And this is one thing I really I admire about you, Patrick, because a lot of folks uh, in uh, just a lot of folks, I'm just gonna say it that way. Uh, they try to paint the perfect picture. You know what I mean? And maybe that's what we do when we hide and isolate. But but right. the truth is, is that by having folks who are um, who have our best interests in mind and who are willing to say the things that that we need to hear, not what we want to hear. That's a fine line. That's always a fine line as a friend. But real specifically with someone who's going through some some stuff that's way deep down in there, like 
it's a really fine line between we call it kind or nice. You can be nice mm-hmm. to people or you can be right. kind to them. And sometimes being kind to them means you got to tell them the thing that isn't going, you know, well yeah. for them. Again, I think I, the Lord has blessed me with putting people in, in my journey at exactly the right time when I needed it. Um, and I, I've just been very thankful for that. Just when we talked about this just a little bit off air, but the statistics are against you. When you have a childhood that isn't a loving two-parent family, da 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 da, and so it almost allows an onlooker to say, "Patrick, you are a you are an outlier. You're an outlier. You're you're there's a bell curve, and the statistic says that you're not supposed to be able to do this, and you're way on the end of the bell curve. You know the the four percent, two percent, one point five percent, who who didn't allow the circumstances in life to roll them over." And the reason I say that that's so unique is because I I think that the Lord puts a lot of good people in a lot of people's lives, but I think that sometimes it takes some real humility and kind of a special ability to see it, to acknowledge it, to accept it, to chase after it, to try to emulate it. You know, you've had men in your life who have guided and led you. You've had uh, a very special woman in your life be able to pick you up and keep you out of despair. That's, that's, I mean, that's special, but a lot of times we don't even acknowledge that. We kind of take it for granted. Well, one of the things that um, I was fortunate enough to to watch from afar was uh, when your wife was was kind of doing a little bit of a play-by-play. Uh, around that time of August 31st in 2021. And that's when uh, the the administration said, we're pulling out of Afghanistan. It's mm-hmm. it's time that we, uh, we end the war. Um, and it was abrupt. Um, you know, we don't, at this house, we don't watch a lot of news, um, but s- because everything's late and breaking and uh, anxiety filled, you know, <laughs> not helpful. Yeah. Um, but sometimes- something pulls up like that and it has your full attention. And right. it, it, I remember feeling a, a whole plethora of emotions and they don't even compare to someone who had been there, who had not only sacrificed them, but the, you know, their health and their, their buddies, but you got to see like the real thing mm-hmm. because you serve there. So I watched this amazing story kind of unfold over a course of I'm not sure how long, but I was tuned in every day to the, to the Patrick Nelson, who was, who had a mission. Can you tell me a little bit about that mission? Yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of started back on my last deployment to Afghanistan. Actually, I was a, um, you know, I was a squad leader. I was leading combat missions and I had interpreters that were assigned, you know, directly to me to assist on missions. And one of them is by my side all the time. I mean, I, I, uh, and, and thankfully, um, you know, he helped me, um, you know, really be able to communicate, whether it was with Afghan border police or Afghan National Army soldiers or Afghan civilians um, or even people maybe that we detained. And he was by my side through it thick and thin through some tough situations. And, um, you know, thanks to Facebook and everything, I've been able to remain connected to him. And, uh, you know, we would trade messages every once in a while. A couple of our other interpreters, um, you know, in, in 2014, 2015, had been able to get over to the States. It's a very long uh, bureaucratic process, mm. a lot of paperwork to get there, um, a lot of vetting that needs to take place. And um, Ali Shah was just having a very difficult time with that process. And I wrote, I wrote numerous letters of recommendation had reached out to people that I know, to congressmen, you know, to try to help, but there's just, it wasn't much that I could do to fix that situation. And August, 2021 rolls around and we're seeing on the news, um, you know, the Americans are pulling out and the Taliban are just on a a path of of taking back territory in the country. And so I sent a message. I want to say it was August 11th, 2021. And I, I asked, are you safe? He said, yes, you know, but he was sleeping in different houses every night away from his family. He was on a list, like many interpreters were. The Taliban knew the people who you had worked for or assisted the military. 
he said, is there any way you can help me to get out? And so at this time, this is when people were, you know, gathering by the tens of thousands at the airport in Kabul, Afghanistan, which is the capital, and where all of the American forces had consolidated to that one airfield as they prepared to meet their their timeline of, you know, is two to three weeks of getting out of the country. And I think we all can remember some of those images we saw initially. All the Afghans were on the airfield, right? They weren't outside of the perimeter. They were on the runway. They were chasing after C-17 aircraft, grabbing onto the tire, thinking that they could hopefully make this journey out of the country. That's how bad they wanted to get out of the country. And I mean, that's that's hard for me to wrap my head around to, yeah. you know, willing to risk your life like that to get out. And unfortunately, many of them didn't didn't make it. And, you know, the, the military was able to clear the airfield, but they have all these Afghans, you know, waiting outside. And so the, the military tries to get as many as they can, prioritizing American citizens to get out of country. So there, you know, there's aircraft coming in every single day, they're evacuating people, but at the same time, they need to vet these people, right? And so there's a process in health screenings and all that kind of stuff that they need to go through. And so just from a logistical standpoint, it had to be a nightmare. And mm-hmm. so I'm down here literally right where I'm at right now in my office, and I'm just messaging with, he's asking, you know, if I know anybody on the ground. So I start just reaching out to my contacts. I said, look, I'm going to try to get you out. I, I will do everything I can until the last American forces leave to get you and your family out of there. And so he has, you know, five kids and a wife. And five kids and a wife? Five kids and a wife. And so now the Taliban have taken over the entire city of Kabul, Afghanistan. And so to get there, he's got to pass through several Taliban checkpoints. And so one night he did a, a little reconnaissance mission to see what it was like there. It was several miles from where he was staying. He got kind of pushed around and beat up a little bit at some of the checkpoints. But he, he he was able to make it there. He kind of found a route where he's like, okay, I, I think I can bring my family this way. Um, you know, 24 hours later, we're messaging. I tell him, look, go to the airport. Let's give it a try now. We'll see what will happen. He packs his family up. The kids, you, you know, these are young children. Uh, the youngest was a four-year-old daughter. Packing him up in the middle of the night, bring him to this airfield that's surrounded by tens of thousands of Afghans trying to get in you know there's no services there uh food water you know restrooms it was very unsanitary and um they waited there for about 24 hours but my contacts weren't wasn't able to do anything and so he brought his family back home i again started with more people that i would know in, in my sort of circle and one of them was my youngest brother, who happened to join the military after I got out, and he served his entire time in the Second Ranger Battalion. Um, you know, he had deployed to Afghanistan six times. He got to do some really cool missions, and you know, he figured I was a paratrooper, so he had to kind of one up me even more yeah. <laughs> and become an Army Ranger. Uh, but he, he a- got to do some really <laughs> cool stuff, and so through his contacts, he found a gentleman that was over there a former army ranger that was providing consular security. He was providing security to state department employees that were trying to vet people. So he puts me in contact with this guy um, over one of those apps. And of course, this guy's getting hit up by hundreds of other people as well. And he's like, I'll try to help you out. Obviously, no guarantees. Um, And so 24 hours later, I tell Ali Shah, I say, look, I want you to take your family. You're going to go to the airport. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be difficult, but you need to stay there the entire time. I don't know how many days. It could be over a week. You're going to stay there. I'm going to do everything I can to get you out. And if I can't, you, know, like you got to wait, you know, until the last plane is left. You can't give up. Like this is a once in a lifetime chance for you and your family to get out of there. Mm. And so they pack up, they, they go, I mean, they're, you know, clothes on their back. And a couple, you know, plastic grocery bags of of clothes and stuff, and that's it. And they get, and again, him and I are like chatting on uh, Facebook Messenger, you know, video calling each other and everything with just the technology that we have. And he was, um, you know, showing me videos of where he's at, and this is at Abbey Gate, is what it was called. Um, it was probably the most popular gate. There's a little canal. 
and the Afghans are on one side and then there's a fence and then there's the airfield and he's waiting there. I mean, it's just absolutely miserable there. Um, this is August in Afghanistan. It's hot. Um, there's thousands of people and we start to get, you know, I, I'm working through all these different apps with other veterans groups who are doing the same thing. And we're starting to see, you know, Intel reports of potential suicide bomber coming all this kind of stuff. Um, and I'm still coordinating with this other gentleman trying to, you know, help him get my people out. And, um, you, you know, I'm and so he's trying like all these people are like waving signs or waving a certain color, like scarf, because how do you depict somebody out mm -hmm. out of this huge crowd? And so, you know, I'm trying to coordinate with these two people. They're not in touch with each other, but through tens of thousands of people, I'm trying to get them to see each other. And um, I get a message says, I think I see the guy from my friend, Ali Shah. I think I see the guy. I need to get his attention. Again, everybody's yelling, trying to get attention. Um, and so I tell him what he's wearing where they're going back and forth to me. And um, he says, I see him. The, the other guy, the American says that I see him. And, uh, and I have no idea if he's talking about the right person, but then I just yeah. don't hear anything. Like the communications just drop, they go down. Like, I don't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden I get one message that says, I got him. And I'm down here in this office. And again, this is like middle of the night here, right? And, and my wife, Shanna, is here. And we're like, it was like pins and needles, um, you know, trying to get him out. So he's got to cross through this canal. And, and somehow I got it. He sent me a picture of, you know, them helping him pull him up over the canal, um, him, and, him and his family. And he gets into the airfield. And I mean, that was just honestly really the beginning of the journey uh, that the family went on. And so they... They spend two or three nights there. They still don't even know if they're going to be able to get on an airplane. They're on the airfield. But they don't know if they're going to get on an airplane. They finally get on an airplane. They send them to the country of Qatar. They're there for a couple weeks in this you know, tent city camp. They send them to Germany. They're there for like 40 some days at another camp. Then they send them to New Jersey. They're there for like five months sleeping on cots, not great conditions. But they made it and then they got resettled in Ohio and it's been an absolute miracle. And him and I have, have still been in touch. We actually did a speaking engagement together in Ohio. Um, absolutely wonderful. You know, we did a, a here in, in, the, in Minnesota, we did a big clothing drive, um, you know, for because a lot of the refugees actually went to Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. Um, and they were, you know, winter was coming. Right. And in, in Wisconsin, it's cold. Uh, many of these people aren't really used to the cold, kind of like that. And so we went out, we went to Coles and other places, just bought a bunch of coats and sweatshirts and boots and stuff like that. And, and I drove it over there one, one day, like many people were doing. Uh, it was just fantastic to see people doing that. <laughs> but at the same time, so after I get his family out, I just had so much adrenaline still going. And I'd been tapped in all these different resources. I, I wrote on one of the the servers here to help the next case if anybody needs help right i got my guy out let me help and somebody messaged me said hey i got um you know two kids that are american citizens uh the rest are all afghan um you know civilians part of the family these kids are six years old eight years old american passport holders they were born in the united states um you know their their father and mother had been in the states when they were born and they need help getting out, but they can't get in because there's tens of thousands of people that are trying to get in these gates. I said, all right, I'll take it. And, um, you know, I get in contact with this family and I just start working it. Um, and I, I tried to, you know, the contact that I had to get Ali Shah out, but he was just so overwhelmed. He, he wasn't able to help with this one. And so I'm just, I'm on the phone. I, I'm with these guys. I get them up to sort of the front of this one sort of auxiliary gate where a lot of people weren't at. And there were, 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 were chatting on Facebook um, Messenger for any messages, trying to get these people on. And uh, I just get this call, video call, and uh, I just hear gunfire in the distance. I can't really see anything. It's just pop, 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 gunfire. I was I had no idea what's going on. And um, finally, you know, after about an hour, he calls me, he says, we're okay. It was kind of some warning shots that was going off between two sides, whatever. 
and he, he gets the phone, he hands it to an American civilian who is guarding that gate, who, who is more than likely a military veteran. Those guys aren't supposed to take phone calls from a random yeah. Afghan dude handing them the phone. They don't do that. Like, that's not the guy took the phone, the American. I said, look, brother. And, and I got actually got this on video. I said, look, brother, my name is Patrick Nelson. I said, I know that there are so many people trying to get people in. I said, these two kids are American citizens. I said, look, I, you know, I fought in Afghanistan. I'm sure like you did as well. I shed blood over there. Can you please help me get this family in. And there was sort of this long pause. And he said, I got you. You've got my word. I will get them in. And he got that family in and their path was a little bit different. They went to Rota, Spain because the two kids were American citizens. Uh, very short stay there. And then they were reunited with the rest of the family back down in San Antonio, Texas, where they stay. And, uh, you know, I've been in touch with that family ever since then as well. So it, it just felt good to be able to continue to help and get that other family. And I mean, it, it felt like I was in the military again, you know, <laughs> that I was doing sort of a um, obviously more of a desk job, but I'm just down here in my office. Again, I'm doing things on my phone. I got this computer going. I got my laptop open, trying to communicate with different people. And it, it was nuts, but it was, the adrenaline was just flowing and it was so awesome to be part of. Um, and, and very sad at the same time too, knowing that we left a lot of people there and there, there's really not much of a means for people to get out right now with the Taliban that have taken over. There are some people that are getting out, but they're very, very few and far between Living under the Taliban control when you are an interpreter that helped the U.S. military. Right. That's a tough hand to play. Yeah. He had a, uh, actually asked after he left to get a young nephew that was shot and killed 19 years old by the Taliban who then sent the pictures to him. The Taliban really? texted my interpreter. You know, like, we know who you are type thing. One of my most influential mentors of my life he uh he would always tell me you know character is what you do when no one's watching and if your wife wouldn't have kind of given us the play-by-play -play, no one would have known yeah but here here you are you're you're done with that chapter of your life if you will and you have a guy who was a friend and who was important to you mm-hmm and you went all out to make sure that he was taken care of. Like that's yeah. the that's the epitome of of character. And and Patrick, as an outlier, I get it. But as a as a as a guy who maybe didn't see loyalty um, at times, and maybe didn't have uh, someone leading him in that way, that is a real hero. You are a real hero. That's awesome, man. It, it was just a small part of a really great team that made it come together. You know, I couldn't have done it by myself. That's for sure. Um, a, again, I'm I'm a firm believer that you know everything out there is happening for a reason, and that people are placed in your lives for a very specific reason. And um, yeah, I was just fortunate to be you know in, in sort of the right place at the right time and reaching out to the right people that made it work. Um, hmm. Very fortunate. Your honor and your loyalty. I hope that the listeners felt those same goosebumps when he said, we made it. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're out. Yeah. I, I hope that they felt felt that same that same inspiration. You know, mm -hmm. we're created for good works to 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 keep your eyes open for them and then to go and carry them out. And that promise is pretty cool uh from the Lord, like your mission's never done kind of thing. And right. so I don't know. I, I would love to hear about uh, what you're doing now, your mission field now. Tell me about it. Sure. Yeah. So again, and I started just doing a little bit of speaking, telling my story. I found it to be very therapeutic. And um, I ended up through a mutual contact, um, getting hired at this small leadership development consulting firm. And I got to do a little, a lot of really cool work with them. I, I got to go to China and Africa and all over Europe, just doing a lot of real leadership development training for organizations ranging from, you know, Fortune 500 organizations to, to small family-owned businesses. And I, I, you know, I by that time I, I had a master's degree in sport management as well. 
but this this company sent me back to back to school. I went to Pepperdine University. I got a master's degree in organization development. Um, and uh, yeah, just a really rich experience. But on February 18th, 2020, well, COVID, as far as what we knew at the time, was still in its infancy. I got let go from that job. I was again right down here in this office. Hmm. And um, and I cried. I, I was a sole incurrer for our family. My wife stayed home with our two girls. And at that time, we were 12 months into the adoption process. Mm. And we just experienced what's known as a failed match. So December 2019, we're matched with a birth mother who's due in March of 2020. Yep. Beginning okay. of February, I, I was up in, um, I was with my previous company. I was in Anchorage, Alaska. And, you know, the adoption agency had set up a call with Shanna and I, and we found out that, um, the woman, the birth that we were matched with was scamming us and the agency we're working through. So we lost out on 15,000 bucks, which is a lot of money, especially when you're unemployed. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, but what hurt worse than that financial investment was that emotional investment that we had in that journey that we'd been on for 12 months. And so, you know, I'm sitting down here in the office crying. My uh, Shanna, my wife and I were kind of talking about some things. We're praying together. And, you know, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Yep. And, um, you know, an hour later, I wiped away the tears. I went to the Secretary of State website. I registered a new LLC and I got my, my butt back to work. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and I joke with people. I say, I wouldn't necessarily recommend you start a new business at the beginning of a worldwide pandemic. <laughs> but at the same time, too, it's not like, oh, poor me. I'm the only one being impacted, right? It's, it's like everybody's being impacted by this. Mm. And, you know, I viewed it as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I just been grinding every single day since then <laughs> to make it work to go out and share my message, uh, you know, as a keynote speaker and, and also, you know, doing leadership development training with organizations. It's interesting you brought up the word loyalty because when Shanna and I were down here, we're trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to name this business? Mm. Um, and uh, on my my desk here sits my maroon beret. Paratroopers wear maroon berets uh, cool. to distinguish that. It makes us feel special. And uh, <laughs> on the crest right there, it says loyalty at the bottom. It was mm. the, the unit um, sort of, I guess, motto. And... Um, yeah, we ended up naming the uh, the company Loyalty Point Leadership. Right. And uh, yeah, it was born that day. That first year was very tough, um, you know, trying to make it work. And uh, I grinded through it. And, uh, you know, I, I invested some of my own money into it to make it bigger and better. I, you know, we, we tapped out our 401k, which you're not supposed to do. Like I know sound financial advice, we we didn't have any money coming in. Like I had to do something to yeah. support this family, pay the bills. And yeah. after a lot of prayerful consideration, we continued on the adoption journey. You know, we brought our daughter Haven in May of 2020, just an absolute bright spot in our lives during these challenging times. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, as I've just been grinding it out, the, the fruits of this labor love that I've been on have, have really started to pay off. And I'm very fortunate to be in the position that I am now, um, you know, where I get a lot of people reaching out to me to come speak and to share my story. Um, you know, I'd say, and, and honestly, about 60% of my work is actually workplace safety focused. Really? So I, I, yeah, I'm not like an OSHA type safety person. <laughs> I can't talk to people about you know, working at heights or uh, <laughs> overhead lifting operation. Like I don't know any of that stuff, <laughs> but I look at it from a leadership standpoint um, and I use my story of my failure to speak up and to tell Emmanuel to put his helmet on to inspire others to have the courage to speak up and to say something if they see something wrong at work that doesn't look safe. And again, it's really, that's been another one of those sort of purpose motivators for me that, that I've had because you get people that come up to you, especially I really like to connect with frontline blue collar workers, you know, people who I honestly kind of really relate to the kind of lives that they've lived. And, you know, getting them to take safety personally at work, because look, when it comes to safety at work, it's not going to be, hey, here's a new piece of PPE we're going to wrap you in, or like, here's <laughs> an OSHA regulation or law that you need to follow. It's going to be driving that personal connection with each other. Yeah. Uh, 
And that's really what I specialize in doing by using my story. Um, you know, it's probably about 60%. It is really that workplace safety leadership focus. And the other is more of the general, um, you know, leadership focus that I do as well. And very fortunate to be able to do that and just continue to, to share the message. But at the same time too, it, it is still a grind. It's, it's, you know, I can't take the foot off the gas. Yeah. Um, I, I have to continue to work it every single day. And it's just, um, it, it's, it's been something that has really been a blessing in our lives. Cool. Honestly, you know, Taylor, the, um, the, the greatest compliment that I get after any type of event is when I get somebody that comes up to me after and they'll be like, you're a Christian, aren't you? <laughs> you know, like I, they can just, it, it, it comes out. I mean, that's something that I pray for before every time I get up in front of anybody and speak, whether it's two people or whether it's a thousand people, um, you know, just letting the light of the Lord, you know, come out and, and further in the kingdom. Um, that's really what my, my purpose is. Yeah. Uh, it's always the, the, the greatest compliment that I can get. <laughs> well, I was thinking about that today. One of the things that it's just a theory in my head, but um, if I live 2000 years ago, I think even if Jesus wasn't God, I think I would have followed him anyway. I think he's, you know, funny and witty and uh, really uh, pretty good at reading situations and all sorts of things that we would give like compliments to people for. Um, yeah. And he happened and he happened to be perfect too, but that's, you know, besides the point that's right. um, in today's landscape, I think, okay, what if you didn't, what if you were unable to say what you just said? What if you're unable, I, I am unable to say I am a believer in the Lord. They're going to have to know it by how you, you know, the Bible says how you love, um, but clearly how you work, <laughs> how you love people, how, you know, all the things that, that uh, have resonated in their story. Um, if you can't tell that this dude's different and not self-centered and seeking, you know, his own, his own, uh, then, then you missed it. Yeah. Because the character that's that's on you, or called it anointing, or your your mission field, or your taking of whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it, um, it's pretty darn clear, Patrick. You are you you're living your mission, and um, you're impacting people at a at a pretty awesome level, and and you're battle tested. And I say that because you actually are battle tested, but you also been through some stuff. So I trust you. I think that's uh, it's 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 hard for me to to put my trust in folks who have never really experienced adversity and you've had your fair share, man. So I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that because especially as, as a speaker, that's one of the things that I hope sets me apart. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of great speakers out there. I, I kind of always question, like you sort of had to have been there and done that. If you want to come talk to me about leadership, like don't just spout off this theory because you're a good speaker. Like I want, I want to hear from somebody that's actually been there and done that. And so that's yeah. something that I really pride myself on. Yeah. Uh, you know, being able to bring to audiences. Finally, you know, you kind of pair that up or run it parallel with the word and just says, you know, you take all the things and turn them for good, you know? And so here you get to, you get to not only live your mission with it, but um, you also get to kind of have your therapeutic sense, just like you said, your, ther your therapeutic outlet, yeah, your 100%. creative outlet, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and, and it all winds up together when, Man, that was all formed before you were born. And that's crazy. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. That's crazy. I'll put some of these things in the notes from today's sure. uh, podcast. But if someone was trying to get a hold of you to uh, to do a speaking engagement, to come and lead their their facility, whether that's safety or whether that's leadership side of things, yeah. how would they get a hold of you, Patrick? Yeah, so my website is www.loyaltypointleadership.com. Okay. You, you could also, I think, go to patricknelson.com and it redirects right to that. Okay. Um, on LinkedIn, I'm very active on LinkedIn, you know, sharing stuff about leadership every week. Uh, so find me on there. Shoot me an email, patrick at loyaltypointleadership.com. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, again, would love any opportunity to be able to come and share my message with people. Yeah, well, it's such a good one. And um, if any, you know, folks are listening and thinking about it, he he's a real deal, man. Um, you should really consider it. Yeah. It happens to be uh, Memorial Day uh, right now. And it's, uh, you know, one thing, one thing we didn't talk about is just how you give back to your crew, right? Tell me a little bit about that. I'll let you um, tell us the story. Yeah, absolutely. So Teed Up for the Troops is a great organization that is very, very near and dear to my heart. 
I would not be doing what I'm doing now without them. So, you know, getting out of the army late 2008, I somehow get connected with this organization called Cheat Up for the Troops, a, a nonprofit organization, a national nonprofit that's uh, headquartered out of Minnesota. And they hold charity golf events, raising money for wounded veterans. And it was started out of a small church group uh, by a guy whose son was deployed, um, you know, out of, out of Burnsville. And, um, you know, he had asked his son, like, what, what can I do for you? What, what can I send you? And he said, you know, don't worry about me. Take care of the people that are coming home that are hurt. And um, so one of the things this organization does is they put that they have a uh, partnership with Ping and they put golf clubs in the, the hands of wounded veterans as a means of physical and mental rehabilitation. Cool. I had yeah, never cool. swung a golf club in my life. I, I didn't grow up around a, 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 a golf course. <laughs> and, um, you know, I always thought it was just kind of for old guys that wore funny pants. But, you know, they put this <laughs> six in my hand and absolutely yeah. fall in love with the game. And I'm a terrible <laughs> golfer. But it's... Yeah, a lot of people kind of get frustrated chasing that little white ball. But for me, it was just such a great opportunity to get out and want to get out in these beautiful golf courses and get this fresh air and, and, and be active again. And then also kind of re-engage me with the veteran community. And so it kind of got me started to share my story. They'd invite me um, to speak at the dinner ceremonies they would have after these golf tournaments. And, you know, just started to share my story more and more after these events. And so, and I still do that to this day. Anytime Teed Up for the Troops calls me and they need something, if I have that date open, I'm 100% there for them. I, I believe in what they're doing. Um, it's it's great people that are very mission-driven. And, um, yeah, you know, I'll never forget. So it's because of them, I ended up doing a speaking event at another nonprofit military related with a gentleman by the name of Stanley McChrystal, who was a former four-star army general. He's actually got his own leadership uh, consulting firm now, very large one. He's written numerous books. This guy gets, has a lot of name recognition. This guy gets 50 grand in appearance to come and talk for 30 minutes. And at that time in my life, I'm talking to anybody that's going to sit down and listen for free. <laughs> and, and so him and I do this same event and I get people that come up to me afterwards and they're like, man, you blew that guy out of the water. I'd rather listen <laughs> to you talk than him. And so I started to think, you know what, maybe you might be onto something here. Like mm -hmm. maybe I need to look at like, you do this as a business. Yeah. And, and so that's, you know, kind of how that connection uh, ended ah. up getting made with this other organization I was at and. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not getting paid 50 grand in appearance. I'll let you know that. But, uh, you know, I'm very <laughs> thankful again for the opportunities that that organization has provided me. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> and it's funny. It's funny because you talk about grinding, getting after it. Um, it. You just you never know. You never know who's listening. You never know. And I'll never forget my very first speaking event. I got paid 500 bucks to speak at the North Dakota Solid Waste Recycling Association and the event planner fell asleep in the front row. I'll never forget it, right? It's like, I hear from all these speakers, like you never forget like kind of that first one. And I thought I was just yeah, on top of the mountain, right? Like, oh man, and uh, yeah, it's a great learning experience and, and fun memory to reflect on. Oh, well, good. Well, hey, happy Memorial Day weekend, Patrick. And um you go enjoy being a father. That's so cool that that's, that's your uh, calling. And uh, both you and your wife, you guys are just, your, your kids hit the jackpot, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks, Taylor. Yeah, you're welcome. And that concludes the Freedom Project podcast. Thank you for taking your time and listening today. If you liked what you heard, please hit like or subscribe and give it a five-star rating. We would appreciate this immensely. Have a wonderful day.